2: A true crime podcast, an audio guided walk, featuring many of London's untold, unsolved, and long-forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is the first in a four-part series on Daniel Gonzalez, dubbed the Freddy Krueger killer. His two-day killing spree across London and the southeast of England left two injured and four dead. But why did he kill? Was he bad or mad? Murder is researched using authentic sources. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. And this is Murder Mile. Episode 135, Daniel Gonzalez, The Lost Boy, Part One. Today, I'm standing in Tottenham Court Road tube station, W1. One street west of the Denmark Place Fire, one street north of the murder or suicide of Freddie Mills, one street south of the corner house killer, and a few streets north of the diminished responsibility of Joe Ganain. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Under St. Giles Circus, at the junction of Oxford Street, Charing Cross Road and New Oxford Street, sits the Tottenham Court Road tube station. Opened in 1900 as part of the Central London Railway, TCR intersects the Central Line, the Northern Line and soon Crossrail, carrying almost 40 million passengers every year. Pandemic or not, a quick trip on the London Tube is a grim experience at best. With sticky seats, dirty air and long lines of muttering morons moaning about the next train being a whole minute away. away. The dizzying infestation of rats running along the tunnels where they recently rediscovered the plague is a nice distraction but it's no more disgusting than the lady I witnessed cutting her toenails on the train. As with much of London's public transport it's had a sad history of disasters, terrorism and accidents. On Friday the 17th of September 2004, at 12.17pm, on Platform 4 of the southbound Northern Line, 24-year-old avid horror movie fan Daniel Gonzalez would be arrested. Having travelled 140 miles with an 8-inch knife, a Jason Voorhees mask, and a dream of being Freddy Krueger for the day, he had left a trail of bloody bodies in his wake and although still keen to notch up a score of ten dead and to be hailed amongst the pantheon of infamous maniacs, his killing spree came to an unremarkable end. As always, the tabloids drooled over every lurid detail of this gory tale, about his drugs, his knives, his method, and especially the blood, fixated on the monster behind the mask Daniel was branded as a maniac born out of pure evil, like Freddy Krueger himself. But what they missed was the true story. As it was here, following the arrival of two British transport police officers, that Daniel's diagnosis was first taken seriously. But the question would still remain, was he bad or was he mad? I was bored. I wanted to know what it would feel like to kill as many people as possible. I felt wicked doing it. This is something I live for. It's a really good buzz. Killing. On Friday the 17th of March 2006 at the Old Bailey Daniel Gonzalez was convicted of the attempted murders of Peter King and Kumis Costantiano, and the murders of Marie Harding, Kevin Malloy and Derek and Jean Robinson. Six strangers chosen at random and brutally butchered without an ounce of compassion. Having deliberated for 90 minutes the jury dismissed any notion that his crimes were guided by a mental illness. As being in his right mind, he was found guilty of murder and nothing less. Judge Anne Goddard would later state, You have brought, you have brought unspeakable misery and grief to the families of those you have killed. You killed four people, and on each occasion you went out to kill. You armed yourself with a knife. You chose who to kill and where to kill, in places where there would be no witnesses. In my view, this is a case where life should mean life. Daniel was sentenced to six life terms, one for each victim, with it later extended to a whole life tariff. And throughout his arrest, investigation and trial. Daniel relished in his glory and showed no remorse. Upon his conviction, Daniel's mother gave her condolences to those her son had murdered. But rightly, she criticised the injustice she had witnessed time and time again. As every time we asked for help, or Daniel did himself, we were told we would have to wait for a crisis to occur. But by then, it was too late. 21st of June 1980, Frimley Park Hospital in Surrey. Daniel Julian Gonzalez was born. His birth was fine, his weight was right, and there were no major medical issues. As starts go, his upbringing was ordinary and uneventful being a healthy, happy boy to Leslie Savage and her husband, Julian Gonzalez, Home was Southwood Avenue in the village of Knap Hill in Woking. A ring of post-war homes with neat gardens, sloping drives, and surrounded by country walks and golf courses. In 1986, when Daniel was six, his parents separated and later divorced. But keen to give his life stability, they kept it amicable. Leslie remarried. Stephen Harper became Danny's stepdad. And although Julian moved back to Spain, this father and son remained in close contact. Problems began in nursery. Being bright, he lacked the social skills to interact. But Daniel was different. As his mother would later state, He was extremely intelligent, but extremely disruptive. He could be absolutely charming, but also very manipulative, which some put down to him being an only child. At primary school, he excelled. But becoming more insular, he regressed inside his own mind and spoke to no one, except himself, his imaginary friend and the volatile fights he would inflict on his mum. For Leslie, the warning signs were there. I didn't know something something was going to happen, but I I was scared. At secondary school, his first mental health assessment was conducted by an educational psychologist who diagnosed him with dysgraphia, a learning disability affecting his ability to write which didn't explain any other symptom. 28th of November, 1996, Daniel was referred to Frimley Children's Center in Camberley, but he wasn't given a psychiatric assessment at that time. Instead, he was seen by a social worker. It's easy to dismiss his doctors as incompetent. But as an inquest would later state, his illness was atypical, and the lack of acute episodes or consistent symptoms made diagnosis difficult. In his teens, he was troubled, but he wasn't a monster. He had issues, but he could be as ordinary as any other boy, which is why the murder trial revolved around one important question. Was he bad or was he mad? With no routine, Daniel's mental health declined. I haven't had a job in four years. I haven't had a girlfriend in ages. I couldn't handle growing up to be a man. I just couldn't take it anymore. In 1997, he had two attempts at employment organized by his mum, a job in a bank and a blockbuster video. But the longest lasted a week as he couldn't concentrate and often got exasperated and angry. To fill his hours of solitude, as many teens do, he played football by himself, he glared at his PlayStation from dawn till dusk, and he took recreational drugs like cannabis, as he said it kept him calm. But years later, as his need grew, he began to abuse skunk, LSD, ecstasy, cocaine, and amphetamines. With music and movies often blamed for the downfall of youth, Daniel listened to Doomcore, a dark ultra-fast techno full of violent themes, sinister tones, and a heart-paralyzing 500 beats a minute. As well as watching slasher films like Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, and Halloween, where a masked knife-wielding essence of evil stalks his screaming victims. But then again, who doesn't have an unhealthy obsession? Age 16, he committed his first criminal offenses, including shoplifting and assault, during which he bit a bus driver's ear. In October 1997, he was placed on a two-year probation order. And having said that he was hearing voices, he was sent to a drugs counsellor. But unable to diagnose his condition, they resorted to clinical default, and Daniel's symptoms were blamed on a drug-induced psychosis. In April 1997, with his exasperated mother struggling to cope with a fully grown, physically strong, and wildly unpredictable son, being at her wit's end, and with very little help from mental health services, Leslie took a brave decision. She placed her son with Mr. and Mrs. Sloan, a foster family who were trained to deal with his psychotic behaviour. And later, he was placed with a new carer called Steve Price, who informed every necessary department that Daniel was at potential high risk of violence and or suicide. February 1998, Daniel was admitted under Section 2 of the Mental Health Act to an open psychiatric unit at St Peter's Hospital in Chertsey, having harmed himself by punching a window. But before his assessment was even complete, he was discharged by a mental health review tribunal. After scores of letters and calls, in which his mother repeatedly pleaded, sometimes in bold capitals, with the words, I need help. Leslie was dismissed, ignored, and re-referred to another specialist. On the 22nd of June 1998, six years before his killing spree, in a letter to the director of Surrey Social Services, Leslie wrote these prophetic words. Does Daniel have to murder or be murdered before he can get the treatment he so badly needs? Words she would repeat again and again and again. Wednesday, the 15th of September 2004. Day one. Victim one. 24 year old Daniel packed his rucksack with a set of spare clothes, a Jason Voorhees style hockey mask, and two 5 inch steak knives, which he jabbed at the plastic washing up bowl to G himself up, muttering, Come on, boy. Come on, come on. His motive was simple I wanted to kill as many people as possible, as many as 10. And to see himself in the serial killer hall of fame. And as the prosecutor would later state, because of the callous, of the callous person he is, it was, it was his personality that led him to kill, not a cocktail of drugs and alcohol. At 9 a.m., Daniel left Southwood Avenue, hopped on a bus at Napp High Street to Woking Station, caught a train to Portsmouth Harbor, traveled 49 miles south, and got off at Hillsea, a coastal district at Portsea Island. Leaving the train at about 11.20am, he walked one mile northwest to Hillsea lines, a 19th-century gun emplacement along Portsbridge Creek, a lush woodland full of leafy canopies, dark gullies and narrow paths. 11.40am. With his heart pounding, a steak knife gripped in his sweaty palm, and the four familiar voices inside his head, spitting words, which he described as a drip, 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 like water torture, each telling him to kill, 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 kill. His dream of becoming Freddy Krueger for the day was about to become his reality. Peter and Janice King were a couple in their 60s taking their dog for a walk. But to Daniel, their names were unimportant, as all they represented were the first two notches on his serial killer scorecard. Daniel entered the path, the knife at his side. And like his horror movie heroes, He stalked, he was silent, and then he struck. With the voices screaming, Daniel lunged at Peter's face with the five-inch blade, slashing wildly as he wailed, I'm going to kill you, at the unarmed man. Only Daniel was not the epitome of pure evil, like Halloween's Michael Myers. As his slashes were fast, but badly aimed, striking Peter's chin, but not his neck. And although three times his attacker's age, seizing his chance, Peter grabbed Daniel's hand and the two tumbled into the undergrowth, only for Daniel to drop the knife and flee, shouting, Sorry, I'm a schizophrenic. I can't help it. As he ran. Peter was taken to hospital, He received several stitches and was released later that day. The police attended the scene, they found the knife, but the fingerprints matched no one on their system. And as for Daniel's fantasy of becoming a serial killer, it came crashing down to earth with the voices silenced and his face smacking hard on the concrete of reality. But he wouldn't give up on his mission to kill as many people as possible, maybe ten. All he would need was someone more vulnerable. 14th of September 1998. Daniel's first crisis meeting. Attended by social services, youth justice services, children's services and the community mental health team all agreed that Daniel was at a potential high risk of violence and or suicide. But a psychiatrist would state, I felt that he was probably psychotic, but I didn't think that he was sectionable because of his lucidity and his lack of delusions. Five days later, Daniel was sectioned. From the 28th of September 1998 to the 14th of April 1999, Daniel was committed to the O'Tree Psychiatric Clinic under section 3 of the Mental Health Act, but later sections 35, 36, 37 and 136, having beaten himself over the head with a saucepan. With his behaviour described as like a wild animal in a cage. Daniel was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, treated with antipsychotic drugs, and opened up about the four voices in his head, who told him what to do, how to do it, when to do it, and why. They each had a name and their own personality. There was Katrina, Misha, Melinda, and Jenny Bean. His mother had seen it herself. I knew he could see someone, because he would look at them and talk. I would say, Daniel, what are you doing? Who are you talking to? But he would always deny it. Over the last two years, Daniel had been diagnosed with four separate conditions, supervised by seven different doctors, repeatedly sectioned, discharged, referred, and trialed on a cocktail of psychiatric drugs. But finally, having been diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic, he was given the right medication, counselling and regular support. He was weaned off recreational drugs and he was making progress. Only once he was discharged, that consistency ceased. In his own words, Daniel told an inquest to have proper care. You need a doctor to follow your path and to cross-examine you thoroughly. If I was seeing someone two or three times a week, at least that's something. But he wasn't. As Leslie reiterated, despite our pleas, Daniel was left without the support he so desperately needed. We did meet individual, decent, caring professionals who were dedicated and hardworking, but even they could not sustain any support over time, as Daniel was moved from one service to another. As for his medication, they tempered the voices and delusions, but every drug comes with side effects. These would include agitation, tremors and muscle rigidity, which some patients describe As like living in a cocoon, barely a life, and to some, it's like being in hell. Dismissing his medication, Daniel returned to the recreational drugs which he trusted to keep him calm, as they didn't imprison him inside his own body. But any drug withdrawal comes with its own side effects. On separate holidays in Canada and Spain, his father and his mother both saw a boy in absolute mental despair. He was completely completely bizarre, scary. We were frightened to death. Without a regular routine or consistent care, his boredom returned and he was back to square one. In August 2007, three years after the murders, an independent investigation concluded that Daniel was not treated successfully, health professionals never engaged with him effectively, and it was a case of missed opportunities. But as his illness was atypical and lacked acute episodes or symptoms, Northwest Surrey Mental Health Partnership would declare that as the murders were not preceded by a history of violence, therefore we do not believe that his actions could have been predicted. Which was true. His criminal record was short and insignificant. Theft, shoplifting, drug possession, non-compliance of community orders and one case of burglary. Age 16, he had one charge of assault having bitten a bus driver's ear but his report showed no known violence since. He had no arrests for weapons, stalking, cruelty, arson, GBH, ABH or manslaughter, as would be expected. He had threatened others, mostly verbally, and his history of physical violence was predominantly self-harm. On paper, this was not a serial killer in the making. But the warning signs were there, and Leslie's prophetic words would come back to bite them. Does Daniel Daniel have to murder, or be murdered, before he can get the treatment he so badly needs? Wednesday, the 15th of September, 2004. Day one. Victim two. As detectives swarmed Hillsea lines to investigate the motiveless stabbing of Peter King, Daniel caught the train to Fishergate, 43 miles east along the English South Coast, and walked two miles northwest to Thunder's Barrow Hill, a beauty spot of open fields and shrouded woods on the edge of the high-down residential estate. As before, he stood, he watched, And he waited. I went to the first place I could go to kill someone. But having been overpowered by his first victim, now he would wait for someone more vulnerable. 73-year-old pensioner Marie Harding was a lovely lady. Described as the nicest, kindest, and dearest person you could imagine. She was a well-loved, die-hard supporter of Brighton & Hove Albion Football Club, where she worked in the club's ticket office and always had a smile for everyone. She was a loving wife to husband Jim, loyal mother to Julie, and a dedicated grandmother to Natalie and Daniel. As was her routine, having visited her family on nearby Oakdean Crescent, Marie was walking home. The day was sunny, fresh and bright. It was the kind of day you would take a stroll in the woods. With his heart pounding, a steak knife in his palm, and the drip, drip, drip of four sinister voices splitting his head like water torture as the small frail lady tottered onto the secluded path, donning an ominous white hockey mask, just like his horror movie hero. From behind, he stalked, was silent, and then he struck. I put my hand on her mouth and stabbed as the cold blade slid through her back. She was screaming. And as her bleeding body dropped like a dead weight onto the leafy path, I slit her throat. Silencing her as he stole 20 pounds from her purse. His callous logic. It was a dead person. Why not take her money? (laughs) Only Marie wasn't dead, but dying. Paralysed, bleeding... Gasping for breath, she felt a numbness as a chill enveloped her and her cooling blood drained into the newly sodden soil. And there this terrified woman lay, helpless, alone, but barely alive. Seeing her cowardly assailant flee into the dim distance as the good life she had lived slowly ebbed away. At 4.20pm, a dog walker found the body of Marie Harding. But to Daniel, her name meant nothing. She was just a number. His first notch on the scoreboard and his place in serial killer infamy. Thousands of football fans paid tribute to Marie with a minute's silence at their next game. Her family were devastated. Her town was in disbelief, and the police were at a loss. With no witnesses, no weapon, and very little forensics, all they had was a senseless killing by an unknown assailant, similar to the attack on Peter King, for which they had no suspect who matched the fingerprints or description. There was no denying Daniel Gonzalez did commit this murder. At his trial, evidence included CCTV footage of his journeys, the tickets and travel cards he had purchased, his hockey mask, which was spattered with Marie's DNA. He made a full confession, and a key piece of evidence used to convict him was his diary. On the train journey home, he wrote... I will be a serial killer. I mean it. I promise. I will be a serial killer. Writing of her last moments. I got that old bitch proper. Bloodbath. Pouring out of her throat, boy. McFlurry. I gotta say this. It felt really, really, really good. One of the best things I've ever done in my life. Three hours later, Daniel was back home in Knapp Hill, sitting in his bedroom, as seen by his mother, at 7.15pm. At his trial for the murder of Marie Harding and three others, the judge would ask, was he mad or bad? And having been diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic, surely that answered the question, but was Daniel Gonzalez really a paranoid schizophrenic? Or was some medical professionals suspected? Was this wannabe serial killer manipulating his symptoms and failures in the system to avoid prison? Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. That was part one of four of Daniel Gonzalez, The Lost Boy. As always, if you enjoyed that episode, stay tuned after the break for some cake, a cuppa, some waffle, and lots of extra details about this case. But before that, a true crime promo. Ooh! Something is creeping in, it 24
1: hours ago, I found out the person that I've been dating for the last six months is a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she had invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual.
2: A big thank you to my new Patreon supporters. Who are? Absinthe, Linda Fife, Claire Gibson, Mene Luki, Sarah Pleitling, Amanda Sims, Queen J, Anne Marie Griffin, Ricky V, and Mark Dunstan. I thank you, the Coots thank you, and even the Greedy Swans thank you. Plus, a thank you to everyone who shares a link to Murder Mile on social media. It's not easy being a tiny little handmade independent podcast trying to compete with the big corporate giants who can afford to spend millions on advertising. So every personal recommendation is very much appreciated. Murder Mar was researched, written and performed by myself with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening and sleep well. Frickin' hell, that was a biggie. Oh, dear Lord. Oh, cripes and lordy. Oh. oh, you can tell it's been, it may only have been three weeks since I've recorded an episode, but cripes. Oh, I forgot loads of things. I forgot setup At the start, my microphone wasn't working. I couldn't work it out. And then I realised I hadn't pressed a button. Oh, all over the shop today. Oh, good. Anyway, but I hope you enjoyed that. Anyway, uh, to people who are new, this is Extra Mile. This is the the waffly bit where uh, I kind of... Oh, we have a little chat. We talk about stuff. Well, I talk, I talk and you listen because I can't hear you. It doesn't make sense, does it? Anyway, it's unedited. It's unscripted. It's not for everyone. Uh, it's not essential. You don't have to listen to it. This is the extra part of the show. You've listened to the show. This is the extra This is like the DVD extras. So, uh, yeah. I'm just going to go and uh, make another coffee. Because I need another coffee. It's an early start. I'll explain. I'm going to open some, uh, uh, some windows and doors. Let's do that. Oh, yes. Little moorhen going past. Uh, This morning the swans were knocking on my window, going, oi, where's our breakfast? Um, Yesterday I had a lovely one, a little uh, female mandarin, Uh, which is very nice. Um, uh, Thank you to, I think it was Son of Gav who pointed out, I thought it was a, uh, what do I think it was? Uh, I can't remember, some kind of some kind of duck thing, but he was like, no, no, it's a female, a female mandarin, and I was like, oh, lovely, brilliant, uh, but it was a lovely, lovely little duck, uh, oh, right, let's get some windows open, oh, I love me. I've just got my kettle on, I'm just going to open the, these, oh, it looks like it might be a nice one today, looks like it might be a nice one to go outside and enjoy yourself, rather than Spending all day indoors editing this bloody episode, which is going to take ages. Gotta wa- note to self, Michael: water your lavender later on. The, the lavender outside needs a bit of a, a bit of a spritz. Just getting rid of the pillows behind my, uh, behind my head. There we go. Right, coming back. Kettle's on. Uh, today's cake. I decided to go for. Oh, I dropped it on the floor. Makes no difference because they're sturdy real lancashire eccles cake oh look at those oh if you've never seen eccles cake before it's kind of like a uh, How how do they describe it on there it's kind of like a nice see oh to serve warm i don't think i've had them warm before do not microwave obviously uh it's kind of like a a nice kind of not so flaky pastry on the outside and then inside is like raisins and shit very nice, very lovely. So that's looking forward to that. That's my little treat. I'll have that with my quaffy, quaffy. Um, light off, Michael. Save energy. I'm trying to be good. Saving energy. Lights off. Uh, I also the other day I re I realised even though I've only got a little vanity basin on the boat to wash in, I realised that still takes five to six litres of water in the morning. I thought that's a real waste. So what I did was I went out and I got a little bowl that fits my head. And I put the bowl in the sink. And now, instead of abusing five to six litres of water in my sink, I'm only using one litre. It's amazing. Just these little kind of saving tips to save water and electricity. It all adds up. So, uh, what else are we doing? Uh, Thank you to everyone who enjoyed Meander Mile. Uh, That was just a little bit of... Ooh, kettles up. A little bit of fun to uh, keep you entertained while I was uh, away doing this, doing all the research for all these episodes there we go lots of helicopters out today uh yeah meandermile so i hope um there's lots of cases that we'll never hear about anywhere else on Meander Mile, and won't be coming back to murder mile anytime soon as mentioned in the episode so if you didn't listen to meandermile i mean it's your choice but it's up to you you've missed out on some cracking little cases and uh some interesting little stories so yeah uh what else is going on uh this weekend very exciting got friend's birthday to go to looking forward to going doing that that's going to be good fun uh uh it's a fancy dress thing it's 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 got to be film themed so i am going as roger moore in moonraker and i've made myself a little uh a kind of a 1980s kind of uh astronaut suit but i'm making a little headpiece because there's a, a bit in uh moonraker that i i love it's a bit antiquated but roger moore goes looking for uh dr Ho- uh, dr goodhead as he as he thinks he goes to nasa he goes looking for dr goodhead and he goes uh, i'm looking for dr goodhead and holly goodhead turns around he goes i'm got dr goodhead and he, in, in his dinosaur way roger moore goes a woman because because he's surprised because well you know woman educated in in a job oh 007 dinosaur so uh, i'm creating a headpiece that you can wear uh, that i can control with my hands so when when i say a woman uh a, a fake eyebrow raises I'm gonna be making that later on that'll be good fun uh as you know i went to see my dad and my stepmom finally after two and a half years we got to see each other we did a covid safe catch up for a couple of days that was nice to see them uh to check on them but make sure they're okay it was good weird to see them after such a long time they'd aged and i think i'd aged as well uh what else is going on um it, it, um i'm off to see my eye specialist today which is why i'm up super early to record this i'm a day early this is the wednesday i'm recording this uh fight because of lockdown my eyes because i have a degenerative eye condition my eye specialist kind of re, quite rightly retired during uh the first lockdown so I haven't had a nice specialist for about a year but I I decided to go private I was like fuck it let's go let's try private because I couldn't get in anywhere and I needed uh, an absolute specialist who knew exactly what my condition was Uh, so I thought well let's try private let's see if they can get me in they got me in with a week they did all the tests Uh, they referred me to uh, a specialist in my condition I got my notes within like two days the other specialists got in contact within a day after that and then he was like when do you want to come in I was like as soon as he was like great I'll get you in next week so I'm in today two hour appointment brilliant and he's already kind of said what what, potential things that we can do so it's very exciting and it's not that expensive I was surprised Uh, and they don't seem to be palming me off with unnecessary stuff which was what I worried about with private because I thought they're going to make money but both specialists I've chatted to have been like, you don't need this, you don't need that, I think everything's fine, da-da-da. So, it's, yeah, very exciting. Uh, what else is going on? Murder My Walk starts this Sunday. <sighs> I haven't done one of those in, uh, well, since last October. I did some in March, before the pandemic, and then that, that all stopped, and then I did four in October, and I haven't done any since. So, yeah, it's I've rehearsed, I'm ready, but... <sighs> bit nerve-wracking but let's hope it's a nice one let's hope that not too many junkies are out to cause me trouble right okay uh let's do a little quiz then we'll move on with the extra details in this case just gonna check that this is still recording it is good uh question number one don't forget as always uh i might balls up some of these questions or i might edit them out because obviously uh you've just heard the edited version of the episode i can't believe i have to explain to people that they've just heard the edited version um um, you've just heard the version i've edited so some of it might be chopped out and don't forget as this is a multi-parter as i go along i might edit stuff out of part one and move it into part two it just sometimes it it, it helps the story better or you know so question number one what was daniel's middle name Slurp of coffee. Question two. Nice easy one, I think. What was Daniel's mother's name? You can just have first name if you want. Question three. Whose ear did Daniel bite? Question four. What age was he arrested for murder? Question five. Name Daniel's brothers and sisters. Question six. What did Daniel stab the knife into on the morning of his first killing? So this is before the killing. Question seven. What type of music did Daniel like? Question eight. The path at Hillsey Lines... Follows a river called What? Question nine. What is Hilsey Lines famous for? i.e., what is there that people go to see? Uh, question ten. What did Daniel briefly study at Brooklyn's College? There's some easy questions there and then some hard questions there so let's dive into some uh extra details uh admittedly this was kind of a case that i've kind of, kind of been umming and ahhing over uh the last couple of years about whether i was going to do it or not um unfortunately it's been kind of over glorified in the press who are kind of obsessed with the idea of oh the freddy kruger killer oh he wore a jason mask oh he's do you know they all use words like uh maniac evil mad blah, 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 blah. you know the kind of shite that the the classic tabloids do where they can't be asked to do any research but they want to over glorify it they want to have a kind of standout kind of front page which has maniac kills blah, so you so everyone goes oh i must buy that newspaper because don't forget people it's not about news it's about stories they're trying to sell newspapers um so i almost didn't do this case But when I started digging about, I found uh, there was uh, quite a lot about uh, Daniel's Mental Health Tribunal. There was an inquest into it. There was a lot of paperwork that I was able to track down for that, which was good. Kind of like with the Camden Ripper as well. I almost didn't do that case. But when I found the, the, the inquest into his mental health, I was like, actually, this kind of opened up a new world of information. So it made the case more interesting for me. Hence, this is less about... The murders. Who did the killings? And who did do the stabbings? And all that all that tabloid shite. And most of the shite that you'll probably find in anything that's written about this. This is going to be mostly about the uh about the mental health tribunal because I think that's more interesting. So, um as mentioned with this, uh, the start of this episode, I started in a reverse way. So we start with the sentencing, and we show what daniel was convicted of he was convicted not of manslaughter of murder he was given six life sentences which was later extended to a whole life tariff um so we will go we've gone into obviously we've done uh we've done the attempted murder on peter king today and we did the murder of marie harding uh we'll we'll dive into the others as we go through but we've got a lot of more information about kind of daniel's back history and is uh, all the kind of inquests that happened around it and uh, and uh, post sentencing as well um uh, as so used part of this in the uh, episode but uh, uh, at his sentencing judge and goddard qc told gonzalez at the old bailey uh, you have brought unspeakable misery and grief to the families of those you have killed your actions have put fear into their lives your own family is also suffering I have to pass a sentence of life imprisonment. You killed four people on three occasions and on each occasion you went out to kill. You armed yourself with a knife. You chose where to kill in places where there would be no witnesses and who to kill. In my opinion, this is a case which means life should mean life. And it did. Um, uh, she also said uh, this has not been an easy case for you to listen to because of the events are so terrible. Um uh, her only option was to give him a mandatory life sentence, which basically i um, mean it ended up being a whole life tariff, which means he would he would never get parole. We'll dive into that later, part four is when we kind of dive into the post sentencing um At the start of here, I've obviously I mentioned uh, his arrest at Tottenham Court Road Tube Station. We're going to dive into that fully into episode three. This is just kind of what I wanted to do with episode one was flag up what was kind of said at the trial, because that's what's interesting about this case. There's nothing clear cut about it. It's kind of like he clearly is someone who has mental health issues, but the kind of the trial said he's he, 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 yes there's mental health issues there but it's kind of it it was his desire to kill you can see everything in his diary you can see, see his obsession with horror movies and you know there was the premeditation there but this is what makes the episode this hopefully this this full part interesting is that we're going to cover all the different aspects of it to try cuz i i still don't think there's there's definition there when we look at this episode 1 is going to be focusing on uh the mistakes that kind of the mental health department said and the fact that they said we couldn't have predicted this episode two next week uh uh we're really going to be focusing on not spoilers really but we're going to be focusing on the fact that um a lot of the kind of different um mental health departments kind of uh, law providers things like that many of them kind of said he's using this as an excuse to evade prison so we'll focus on that as well because i think that's really important um episode three episode three is kind of kind of the 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 glorification and the use of kind of films and and things like that and you know and episode four we, we really dive into kind of what happened post-conviction because that's interesting because he can't he can't leave prison anymore he can't commit any murders so surely if this was all fake he could just shut it off and go okay fine he caught me okay yeah um i'm um, I'm, um, i'm just pretending to be mental but it wasn't no spoilers but it's an interesting case i'm not going to come to a conclusion on this it's it's but there's a lot to say uh the voices in his head he always referred to them as cool voices they told him what to do uh they're all females uh katrina misha melinda and jenny bean he also said that the television would talk to him um We use this. I use this quote in the episode where his mum said uh, he never denied the illness as whole. I've kind of cut it down. Uh, As an example, if I was in another room and he was in the living room, but I could see him in the mirror. So he wasn't aware I could see him. I could see him doing all these things. And she demonstrated kind of him grimacing with his face. And I knew he was talking. I could see. He could see someone because he was looking at them and talking and doing all these things. I would go in and say Daniel what are you doing who are you talking to Uh, he would say I wasn't talking to anybody it was just a joke I remembered he would always deny it it was a moment of denial uh it wasn't a denial of the whole thing I can't explain it what it boils down to in the end is that he did not want to talk about the voices that was basically it uh so uh, they never really went there. So it was only really when he was kind of getting the psychiatric help that he started to started to begin to open up about the voices, and especially when he was arrested. Um, the arrests, we're going to cover that a lot in episode three, because that's kind of when he was arrested and uh, when he was uh, questioned by the police, and that's when he started opening up about things. But it's it's interesting it's uh i don't want to give too much away but it's kind of you you can it's hard to decide who he is and what he's about uh as mentioned in the episode he had a couple of holidays with his family his dad lived in spain so they went on holiday in may 1999 to see his dad for a couple of about two or three months i believe um uh and another holiday in august uh now he was off his medications at that point but he'd started going back onto recreational drugs but the problem is when he went on holiday he didn't have access to um uh, obviously he wasn't using his uh, medication but he couldn't get access to recreational drugs as well and this is what his his dad and his mum and also his grandmother saw at this moment um Uh, His mum said, uh, certainly we knew 100% that he didn't have access to drugs. This is when he was on holiday. Uh, Oh, oh, she said that there. When we went on holiday, uh, he was completely bizarre, scary. We were frightened to death. Uh, In Canada at one time, we took him on holiday, and I know, I didn't know at the time, he was definitely psychotic. Um, Now, the the problem is, you know... uh, getting your treatment is it is kind of a two-way street you know doctors can book you in for things but you need to be kind of uh you need to be kind of uh attending these appointments and, and you know uh facilitating as much yourself as well and the problem but the problem with daniel it, you know he kind of saw that uh recreational drugs was his way to kind of control it as mentioned in there he didn't like the fact that he was on uh, uh what they call old traditional uh depot antipsychotics which um basically uh it's a slow release injection that they put it into your system and it slowly releases through your system as as opposed to just taking drugs on a regular basis but the problem is a lot of these drugs as mentioned have kind of really bad side effects you know uh drooling numbness nausea you know muscle rigidity twitching you know you may kind of feel better on the inside but on the outside your body is just just it looks a mess and it is a mess. Uh, So as he was uh, not staying on those drugs and moving on to recreational drugs, he stopped having kind of a a, a kind of a regular routine. Um, uh, They said over the over the next few years, so between 1999 and 2004, which we'll dive into probably more next week, uh, he received really inconsistent care. He stopped and he stopped and started treatments. He failed to turn up for appointments uh and as mentioned he was given conflicting diagnosis throughout and was pretty much left to fend for himself as his mum would say we tried and tried to get treatment but we never got what we needed it makes me so angry it's like warning someone to wear a bike helmet before an accident an accident uh you want to say i told you so uh i'm not going to go into that bit because we'll probably use that last time uh as mentioned his mum uh, repeatedly said every time we asked for help we were told we would have to wait for a crisis to occur before he could get the help he needed uh, i did not know something dreadful was going to happen but i was scared this seems to be a consistent thing throughout that she's constantly saying do you know I, I, this is what makes I think it quite interesting at the start is you know the papers go oh do you know he had access to knives he we didn't have access well he didn't have knives they were his mother's knives that he got from the kitchen drawer and they go oh he had a Jason mask oh he liked horror movies oh he liked Doomcore oh he had the, all these different kind of drugs and they go well you, everyone should have seen that he was a serial killer but look at his past look at look at, the, look at what's in there do you know he's got a, minor convictions for shoplifting do you know he's got minor convictions for you know, I think he has one for um, burglary which we'll go into next week uh, but that's much later um, his convictions are minor he doesn't really have assault he has uh, verbal abuse um, mo- uh, some self harming against himself but he doesn't have a history of kind of going out and committing random acts of violence he doesn't go do you know, he, there's, there's criminal damage in there but it's not to people so do you know it's easy for the press to go oh well you could see you as a serial killer no you couldn't it's not there it's if, if you if you take some of the information and you separate it and you go oh let's let's use just this bits but not those bits yes you could say yes you could go oh look it's clear but it's i'm not trying to um help out the mental health services here but when you've been through kind of uh, the various psychiatric institutions and you, you've seen ver- various people in there, you can see some people and go, "Wow, you know, they have the potential to potentially be, you know, uh, maybe serial killers or murderers or things like that." But with Daniel, it's just not there. There's just nothing right at the start that says he's going to brutally stab people to death. He's going to slit their throats. You know, it's just not there. Uh, but unfortunately, that, that does happen with the. Uh, paranoid schizophrenics you know it can just take a moment and with episode three as well what we're going to do is what i'm doing is i'm building up to the days before the first murder so this episode we did the first murder the next one we'll do the next one and then we'll go on but uh we'll do the day two days before the murder which is significant he doesn't he doesn't attack anyone but it shows his mental state Uh, and i think that's really important Uh, so that'll be part three that's why with this story i've got kind of a lot of it's kind of fast forwarding and rewinding through time so uh, it's uh uh, it's it's worth keeping up with this uh as mentioned let's uh i think we've kind of covered everything with the the first uh, the, the attempted murder so his mum and stepdad had gone out to work he packed his rucksack he put some clothes in there obviously he was predicting that he was going to be uh blood spattered so he was he got some spare clothes in there he got his uh friday the 13th style hockey mask which on the first attack he didn't wear uh, and a small black-handled steak knife about five inches long. There were two of them, in fact, which he got from uh, his mother's kitchen drawer. Um, so he doesn't have his own knives, uh, which you would kind of expect. If he if he had a history of kind of violence and things like that, you'd expect him to have his own knives. They're not difficult to get. Uh, why he went to... He'll see, we quite don't know whether he went there before. it's 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 a remote place. I mean... I'd heard of it, but I'd never been there, and I had to double check where it was on the map. Do you know why did he go there? We really don't know. Um Did he visit there uh, kind of as a kid It's these places are just so random, even though he said he, he he prepared for it it's It just doesn't make sense. It's like if he wanted to kill a lot of people, why not just go into the centre of London with a knife and start stabbing? Why didn't he go into Woking the nearest town to him? you know he went all the way down to the south coast he went to hilsey but he was on his way to portsmouth why not just go to portsmouth you know a lot of this doesn't make sense uh, that this is also something that we're going to be diving in later on as well um uh i think we've kind of covered everything with peter and janice king that was the first attempted uh murder that as mentioned you know he was he was grossly overpowered with this 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 just shows you know he he decided to pick someone who he thought was kind of elderly. This guy was kind of you know, only really sixty one he was out taking a walk with his knife uh he, he uh peter managed to grab uh Daniel's hand holding the knife and then they wrestled to the ground and then Daniel dropped the knife and fled you know it's um we're gonna these these attacks will come back later on so we'll be covering these a lot later on as well um kind of what happened between eleven thirty a.m and the time when he killed marie harding of which we still don't know what time she was murdered we know that she was found around four twenty p.m uh but it was never really stated what time they predict that she was murdered because because she was bleeding to death they don't they don't quite know what time exactly she was attacked uh, it could have been anywhere between kind of like 12 and 3-ish. We know that Daniel made it back home uh, at 7.15 he was in his bedroom. And the journey back from uh, Highdown, which is where he was, to his home is about three hours. Um, so, yeah, so it, it, it must have been pre-4 o'clock because he was found about 3.20. Uh we will return to some more about this. Oh, I'm not going to cover too much about this. Uh, he, uh, we'll cover back in later episodes about his diary as well. I'm just being cautious not to tell you too much at the moment. Because, you know, there's a lot of details which we'll be coming back to again and again. And because I haven't written episodes parts, parts 2, 3 and 4. I don't want to kind of balls things up now by telling you stuff that um, will kind of be, uh, you know. I don't want it to be a spoiler. But his diary is really important it's kind of interesting that he did keep a diary um and i think that this was really used as part of the key evidence in his trial showing his motivation that he did want to be a serial killer that he wanted to try and kill it's up to 10 people that he, he had got a knife that you know his thoughts he'd there, there was no compassion shown by him throughout any of this uh so you can see why he was charged with murder as opposed opposed to manslaughter and do you know why they said you know this this was all premeditation. You did this, um, therefore you're going to go to prison for the rest of your life. Slurp of coffee. Um, ooh, what did I put in there? That tasted a bit weird. Um, I think that's it. I think that's all I'm going to tell you on this episode. Let's do the answers to the questions, um, and then I can start editing and then head off on a lovely day. Head off to my eye appointment. Ooh, joy. So, answers. Okay. Question number one. What was Daniel's middle name? It was Julian. Julian. Question two. Easy one. What was his mother's name? It was Leslie. Surname Savage. Uh, Question three. Uh, Whose ear did Daniel bite? It was a bus drivers Uh, question four what age was he when he was arrested for murder 24 question five name his brothers and sisters that was a trick question he was an only child question six what did daniel stab the knife into on the morning before his first killing it was a washing up bowl question 7 what type of music did daniel like he liked doomcore this is something that the press love going on about they go oh he listens to doomcore and it's full of it's full of all or dangerous themes and you know the the beats like our ah house music has beats of like 120 beats a minute but this is like 500 oh god therefore therefore he must be evil Twats. um <laughs> i'm sorry i just hate this generic kind of shite when people use words like evil mad maniac i think it's I, I think it's lazy i think anyone who uses that just can't be asked to do the research into the background to go ask the questions why is this person doing what they do if you just say lazy bad evil mad fucking forget it you're not a true crime fan you're just just um just the kind of person who reads tabloid shit Ugh. sorry uh, question eight uh, the path at Hillsea Lines follows a river called what? It's called Portsbridge Creek. Question nine. Uh, what is Hillsea Lines famous for? Uh, it's a 19th century gun emplacement. In uh, question ten. What did Daniel briefly study at Brooklyn's college? It was Spanish and drama. Although... Possibly I've edited that uh, bit out. Because it may not be important. Good. That's me done. Hope you enjoyed that. That was a bit of fun. Oh, I've got a lot to edit. That was a really long one. Uh, hope you enjoyed that. Um, we shall be back next week with part two of four. Um, there's 15 episodes in this season. This part of the season. Uh, unlike people like Wondery. Who only have six to eight parts in their season. Murder Mile has whole year but break broken up by little bits to do me a little bit of research so it's 15 bits in here and then i'll do a kind of a three-parter uh in kind of middle of october as a break to give me a chance to do the rest and then we'll end with eight eight episodes uh probably a big four-parter as well so which i'm uh, researching at the moment so hope you enjoyed that that's the end of murder mile uh have a good day stay safe be good lots of love stay safe
0: bye bye